I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. On this episode of Newt's World, almost every American knows someone who has been affected by the opioid crisis. Addiction is an issue that impacts individuals from every walk of life and has led to tragic destruction and in some cases suicide, in other cases simply people dropping out of normal society. My guest today was a young staffer in the White House during the Clinton administration. But just a few years later, he would face the challenges of addiction, homelessness, and being alone. In 2015, he began his recovery from a decade of active opioid use and is now a leading national voice for addiction recovery. He's a recovery advocate, community organizer, and author. His first book was American Fix, Inside the Opioid Addiction Crisis and How to End It. It tells his personal story of addiction and recovery. And he's joining me today to discuss his new book, Unsettled, How the Purdue Pharma Bankruptcy Failed the Victims of the American Overdose Crisis. I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Ryan Hampton. Ryan, thank you for joining me. And I want to take just a moment, if I could, to ask you to share with us your own personal story. New, thanks for having me on. So in 2003, I was on a hiking trip with my roommate right outside Washington, D.C., at a very steep trail called the Billy Goat Trail, which is between Maryland and Virginia. And I slipped and I fell and fell really hard and ended up injuring 
my ankle and my knee, actually cracking the platella of my knee and ended up in the care of an urgent care physician, small ER room where the doctor told me I needed to get an MRI, told me I needed to, you know, get my ankle looked at, but in the meantime, gave me a prescription for a very high grade opioid called Dilaudid, which is also known off-brand as hydromorphone, which I learned recently is actually a Purdue product. And while I didn't get that MRI done or that surgery done right away, I was able to go back to the doctor and get a prescription and another prescription and another prescription and another prescription. You then moved to Florida and got hooked up with pain clinics. You showed up at your doctor's office and told that you are now in a database for people who use opioids, and you were told you'd be arrested if you showed up in a doctor's office. And you then started using street heroin. But on February 2nd, 2015, you began your recovery. I mean, that is virtually a lifetime crammed into just a few years. When you look back on it, are you a little surprised that you survived? I'm blown away that I survived. This is an important time for me, you know, as we get into holiday season, into the new year, between October 31st, 2014, and the evening of Thanksgiving 2014 was when I was asking for help. I was homeless on the streets of Los Angeles looking for help, and I had to walk to a payphone every single day and put a quarter in it to find a public facility that would take me. I oftentimes think back about how did I make it? And all I can say is thank the heavens above. When I got help, when I finally got into recovery, fentanyl hadn't hit the scene yet. You know, I've lost over 30 friends of mine, people I love, people I care about to overdoses, fentanyl overdoses. During the lockdowns, they couldn't get access to hospitals and treatment facilities and they ended up losing their lives. And I reflect oftentimes, why did I make it? Why am I here today? Why am I able to be in the place that I'm at today? And my friends and people I love are not, and I still mourn their deaths. And all I can do now in remembrance of them is to fight harder, to make sure that we have equitable access to the care that people who are struggling need today to save their lives because the system is really broken. I experienced the system being broken from the outside, from someone who was looking for help. And then I experienced the system being completely broken from the inside, which is the topic of my new book, Unsettled, and why we face these challenges in the first place. But yes, I consider myself lucky. I'm not here today able to talk to you because everything worked out the way that it was supposed to and the system is perfect. I actually lucked into it. I lucked into evidence-based treatment and treatment with buprenorphine and Suboxone and housing and able to find a job and able to have peer supports and able to plug into a community that believed in me and was able to lift me up when I couldn't bring myself up. And you know, I think if anybody can get anything from my story and reading the books, it's that, you know, when the right support is there, recovery is possible. Recovery should be the outcome. People can live productive lives and thrive in recovery after a lifetime of devastation by addiction. But we have to make sure that we've got a good safety net to catch them and support them when they're asking for help. 
So I'm curious, if we can stay with your story, what was the moment when you decided that you had to start the long journey of recovery? It's a great question. When I got admitted on Thanksgiving Eve 2014 to a public treatment facility in North Los Angeles, I actually wasn't really looking for help. For about a month prior, my mother was the only person who would talk to me. I had lost all connection with friends, family, former employers. Nobody wanted anything to do with me. People expected they were going to find my body out in some ditch somewhere dead of an overdose. And my mom, I would talk to her once a day and she would say, you know, I believe in you, Ryan. I believe you can do this. I have faith. I have faith that you can do this. Just go get some help. And it was really my mother's faith in me when I couldn't believe in myself that led me to make that phone call. But when I was making that phone call, what I was looking for was really a roof over my head and some food to eat at night because I was tired of living on the street. I was tired of having nowhere to go. I was tired of not having a community to come home to. I didn't really expect that I was going to stay sober or make it into recovery because I had had so many previous failures at treatment and recovery before. So when I got to that treatment facility, I was looking for a place to lay my head down at night. But what I got was something way bigger than that. And as I stayed longer, as I met people in that treatment facility and in the subsequent recovery housing program that I was at, I stayed in recovery housing for 18 months. I found what I was always yearning for, which was a sense of community folks who were willing to help me. I saw that there was a different way for me than just living on the streets. And maybe there was some sort of purpose out there. And so it wasn't like this one moment, white light moment. It was several moments throughout the course of about 18 months to two years that really kept me on that path and keeps me on that path today. Today, the reasons I stay sober are so much different than what they were when I first went into treatment. I mean, I'm engaged today. I'm involved in my community. I'm an advocate. You know, I've written two books. There's things for me to live for today. I have a tremendous relationship with my mother and my sisters. And so the reason that I maintain my recovery is constantly changing. But that first kind of aha moment was basically just, I need a reprieve because I'm tired. Do you go to a support group? I do. I'm a very active member in a 12-step fellowship. There's multiple pathways of recovery. You know, I would say there's as many pathways of recovery as there are people seeking or in recovery. But for me, it is a 12-step based fellowship. I have found a tremendous amount of community and hope and peers in my 12-step fellowship, and I am pretty rigorous about it. And how often do you go? Oh, goodness, several times a week. <laughs> I'm curious because I have a very good friend who is a recovering alcoholic who went through a very lengthy and painful detox about 1983 and has really been sober every day since then, but is very vividly aware that he is recovering, not recovered. And he's very careful about what he does and he exercises constantly. On the other hand, I had a very, very close friend who went three times into detox and never took. I mean, he'd go in, he'd come out, it would last three or four or five months, and then he would slide back off. And it was sort of like there was an emptiness in his life and the 
experience of fellowship you're describing somehow didn't reach him. It was a great tragedy, and he, he ultimately died of cancer. But at the time, I watched and thought, here's a person of great talent who had lost control of himself. Yeah, and you know, I think it's probably the most important ingredient in recovery is community. Because I think that's what we're all longing for. You know, people find recovery in faith and in religious and in church settings. People find it in 12-step recovery. People find it in other community settings. But we're all, I think, yearning to be a part of something and to have fellowship with other human beings. And without that, which is why it's so important for me to stay close to my recovery community, close to my 12-step fellowship, we do veer off course. You know, it's very hard to do this alone. Folks have a hard time seeking and maintaining recovery alone. You have to have a community that you plug into. I think it's fascinating that you created a web series, Addiction Across America, where you documented a 30-day, 28-state, 8,000-mile cross-country trip visiting places hit hardest by the addiction crisis. You did that pretty rapidly after starting into recovery. How did that conceptualize occur to you? New, I mean, you'll appreciate this story. In 2016, you know, I was about a year into my recovery and a lot of people close to me started dying. One of my roommates who I was really close to and they were overdosing. And I felt like, you know, when I was out in active use, I could count on my left hand how many people I had a relationship with that died of an overdose. But as soon as I got into recovery and created these meaningful relationships with folks in my community, many of them started dying. But the circumstances of their deaths were really angering me. What do you mean by that? What does circumstances mean? Being turned away from hospitals. A friend of mine, Nick, who had a relapse with heroin and went into a hospital and said he was afraid he was going to overdose. He needed some help. He needed some mental health care. He didn't know where else to go. And he was turned away and given a bunch of hotlines he could call for a crisis center the next day. If he was willing. He wasn't seen by a doctor. He wasn't given a bed. I mean, people being denied health insurance, some of the biggest health insurers denying coverage to friends of mine who needed addiction treatment when they're supposed to be paying for it. Circumstances like that, when people were asking for help, they were being denied care. And that was angering to me when they were dying. And so it was spring of 2016, and there was a presidential election that was going on, heating up, and nobody was listening to us. I was trying to tell Nick's story, my friends who I had lost their stories to different policymakers. And nobody would take my call. Nobody would take me seriously because they saw me as just this quote unquote addict. And I was reading the newspaper one morning with my best friend, Garrett, on the deck of this recovery home. I was driving Uber at the time and I saw an article about how elections for the delegates to the national convention for the state of California were taking place the next month and that you would need to register to vote and you could run for delegate. And immediately that work I used to do as a community organizer popped in and I said, well, maybe if I ran for delegate to the convention, there's no way I'm going to win. But maybe if I ran, people would listen to us. Maybe I could go talk to the community. At the very least, I could talk to this caucus about the overdoses happening in our community. 
And so that's what I did. I registered, I went around to sober homes, I got sober homes registered to vote, went to recovery centers, started to organize them, talk about our friends' stories and ask them all to show up to this caucus and to vote for me for delegates so that I could get up and talk to our members of Congress, city council members, judges, you know, kind of the party elite in that community. And that's what we did. 40 of us showed up there. We worked the line of 700 people who were there to vote for their candidate at the caucus for the presidential nominating convention. And what we found was we spread out to work that line and I would start saying, hi, my name is Ryan Hampton. I live a few blocks away. My friend Nick just overdosed and died six weeks ago. And before I could get that out of my mouth, somebody would put their hand on my shoulder or grab my arm and say, I just lost my granddaughter to an overdose. My brother's in treatment right now. I grew up in an alcoholic household. Everybody was impacted. And I won that election and I needed to get to the convention somehow. So we decided to take this message on the road. And my best friend and I rented a 35 foot RV and we traveled across the country and decided this wasn't about a political convention or a political party. This was about getting the political parties to start talking about overdose and addiction as a policy issue. And you know, we raised a little bit of money we went to those 22 states. We stayed in homes of family members who had lost loved ones. We went inside of prisons and jails and met with people on the street and went into recovery centers and met with members of Congress. And what I found going on that trip was that I wasn't alone in my anger and in my frustration and in my outrage that addressing addiction in this country wasn't a top policy priority. And it changed my life. I came home from that trip and that's when we founded the nonprofit Voices Project, the organization that I lead today, which advocates for people and policy solutions to the overdose and addiction crisis in this country. It was a life-changing experience, but it started as just an idea at a local political caucus for our community to be heard. Because I do believe that addressing addiction in this country is a political issue. It has to be a political issue and it has to be a bipartisan issue. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? 
they're also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino's home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. So let me carry you back for a minute because I think it will help people get a better sense of how vulnerable anybody is to this. In many ways, I mean, your addiction starts with a broken ankle. It doesn't start because you're out at a nightclub. So walk us through the process by which you go from a helpful drug to a destructive drug to an illegal drug. Yeah, and it wasn't a very protracted journey either from one end of the spectrum to the other. I had that injury shortly after leaving the White House in 2003, and I was still in Washington, D.C., and went to that urgent care center. And they said, you're going to need to get this ankle looked at and an MRI done. But in the meantime, here's this prescription, hydromorphone Dilaudid, which, by the way, most people don't know, was a Purdue product, a very high-grade Purdue product. And I took it, and I didn't end up getting that MRI or that ankle checked out, but I kept getting another prescription because at the same time, my father had passed away and I had to move back home to Florida. And if you know anything about the current day opioid crisis, overdose crisis, you'll know that Florida was the epicenter in the early 2000s, mid 2000s for the pill mill crisis. They used to call I-95 Oxycontin Express. People would come down to South Florida to see these doctors to get prescriptions filled for Oxycontin and take them back to West Virginia or Kentucky. And after moving back to Florida, I still needed to manage this pain because at the time I did have legitimate pain. I had cracked my knee and my ankle. And I went to my primary care physician and said, doc, I have this pain. I was seeing this doctor up in Maryland. What do I do? Where do I go? Can you prescribe something or give me something I can do? Can I get surgery? What do I do? And the doctor said, I don't do pain medicine. You're going to need to go to a pain specific clinic and there's plenty for you to choose from. You can look in the back pages of the Miami New Times, which is what I did. And I ended up in a pill mill clinic, not knowing what it was under the care of a woman named Dr. Leah. And the first time I went to that pain clinic and told her what I was on, 
she said, no, 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 no. I have something way better for you. You're taking too many of these. You have to take four to five of these a day at different times. I have a medication you can take just once or twice a day. And that's all you've got to do. And it was Oxycontin. I got my first prescription for Oxycontin from Dr. Leah. I wish I would have known what I know today about Oxycontin and the high abuse level that it had. But I can remember Dr. Leah telling me that this is a medication that is got a very low abuse potential. And that if I was feeling any type of symptoms from not having enough of the medication, that it would be okay just to call her that this was very normal, that dependence didn't equal addiction. And that was really the beginning of the end for me because as I needed more medication, instead of taking me down or looking at alternative ways to treat the pain or even call the question if I had an addiction at the time, they kept giving me more and more and more. And eventually that use turned into misuse and that misuse turned into problematic use and full-blown addiction. For that first two years though of using the medication, I didn't connect addiction with the pill use. And it sounds silly to say that today, but I honestly did not know. I used to keep the pill bottle on my desk at work. I was working on congressional campaigns in South Florida. Oxycontin was like a thing. If anybody listening can remember, I mean, folks used to have Oxycontin in their medicine cabinet. They would leave the extra pills from a surgery or, or some sort of an injury. We didn't know the risks at the time. Wasn't Oxycontin what got to Rush Limbaugh? Yes, yes. The same problem. The same problem. And you know, Newt, I write about Rush in my first book. When I got involved in this advocacy work, and in 2017, I remember there was a Bill Maher segment on HBO where he was mocking Rush for his Oxycontin use and problems with Oxycontin. And I was infuriated because I don't agree with Rush on a lot of things, but the fact that we were still using someone's issues with addiction and Oxycontin as like a cheap shot, I mean, it just maddened me. But yes, it is what Rush experienced issues with. And the Oxycontin use turned into heroin because Florida in the late 2000s was starting to see the impact of Oxycontin and just this massive amount of pill clinics that were opening up around the state. I'm telling you the truth when I tell you there were more pain-specific pharmacies and pill clinics that only dealt in narcotics in the state of Florida and particularly South Florida than there were McDonald's or 7-Elevens. It was big business. And when Florida realized they had a problem, their solution was to just shut the supply off. They didn't realize that they had now have to deal with this very large population of people who are addicted. They said, let's just create this database. We'll track how many pills people are taking, what doctors are prescribing. And if people are taking too much or seeing more than one doctor or have an addiction problem, we're just going to stop prescribing. They're not going to be allowed to fill a prescription. And when I got tagged in that system and Late 2008, 2009, I remember walking into my doctor's office, trying to get the prescription. I was dope sick, for lack of a better term. I was in withdrawal. I needed my medication. I was in full-blown addiction at the time. I was homeless. Doctor said, I can't prescribe this to you. 
I mean, called me all sorts of awful terms, but one of them was junkie. And if you try to come back to this office or go to any other doctor to get this medication, you'll be arrested because you're now tagged. And when I walked out of that office that day, this wasn't just happening to me. It was happening to thousands of people. There was somebody there in the parking lot with heroin who said, I have something that will get you well right now. It's cheaper. You can call me anytime. And that was the beginning of, you know, the heroin use for me and almost the end of my life. I'm pretty ignorant about this. Was heroin stronger than Oxycontin? It depends. Let's just say it was the same effect at minimum. But yes, depending on the grade of heroin and where you got it from, it could be stronger. Today, it is much stronger because a lot of the heroin is now cut with fentanyl, which is why we're seeing you know, these numbers that we're seeing. I mean, people are dying left and right, but at a minimum, it would have the same effect as heroin. And from an economic standpoint, much cheaper. So as part of your recovery process, and this goes back to your own experiences in Washington, you ended up helping with the first ever U.S. Surgeon General's report on addiction in 2016. I mean, that must have given you some real sense of satisfaction that the pain you'd been through, you could now use to help shape public policy. Yes. We started to see a shift in 2016 and in 2017 around addressing addiction as a public health crisis. That Surgeon General's report was a seminal report that really started to lay out effective strategies for what we need to be doing to combat addiction. And it went from evidence-based treatment to effective prevention measures, to housing, to recovery supports for people who were in and seeking recovery. Working on that report was really one of the first things I was able to do and stand by and feel really proud that I was able to be a part of. Hopefully, states and the federal government today start implementing some of those strategies. It's been slow to come, but we know what we need to do, and the data and the science support it. In that period, you also published American Fix Inside the Opioid Addiction Crisis and How to End It. What made you decide to write the book? I had just gotten back from the trip, that trip across America, and I was in a bookstore in Pasadena, California. And I was looking for a book on solutions to the addiction crisis. And I saw a lot of books there, a lot of books written by celebrities, journalists, very good books that talked a lot about the problem. But I was looking for more of a prescription for how do we get out of the crisis? What do we do? And guess what? I had a really hard time finding that book. In fact, it didn't exist. And I came home that night and I looked at my roommate with frustration and said, we still have a tall hill to climb in terms of getting solutions out into the market and couldn't find this book. And he said, well, why don't you start writing about the trip? Why don't you start writing about the people that we met on the trip and the things that they're doing in their communities? Because those are real solutions. Those solutions are coming from the grassroots. They're not coming from the federal government. They're coming from the ground up. And I thought he was crazy. I said, I have no idea how to write a book. I have nowhere to start. And he said, why don't you just try? And so I put some thoughts on paper and ended up sending a proposal to a few of the big publishers. And one of them got back to me, St. Martin's Press and a gentleman by the name of Adam Bellow, who publishes a lot of great books. And Adam said, I'm interested in this book. My daughter works in a methadone clinic. My editorial assistant just lost 
his older brother to an overdose a couple of weeks ago. This is different. You're talking about solutions and you're talking about community-based solutions and we'd like to publish the book and we're not going to tell you what to put in it. We want you to write the story that needs to be written and we'll publish it. And that's how American Fix came to life. And it was a prescription for actions that people can take in their local communities to push policymakers in the right direction. It must have given you a great sense of satisfaction when you held the first copy. It did. I remember crying. I remember talking to my mom. I think the level of personal satisfaction was fascinating, but the real satisfaction came from the fact that a publisher like St. Martin's or Macmillan or a book like this would be on the bookshelves that was talking about things that people could be doing, that the narrative was starting to change as opposed to blaming people who have had an addiction or suffered and really starting to look to them for things that we could be doing to combat this devastating crisis. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. So you go from there, though, to, I think, one of the greater scandals of recent times, And that's the whole Purdue Pharma story. And you write, unsettled, how the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy failed the victims of the American overdose crisis. Oxycontin really is a product of Purdue Pharma. They patented it in 1996. And it's really interesting, the whole history of Oxycontin, the relationship to the regulators, the relationship to the medical community, 
I think it's a very important story, and we really wanted to do a podcast talking with you about Purdue and the way in which Purdue operated. When you think of criminals, criminals that got us to where we're at today and kind of the taproot of this modern-day overdose crisis, you've got to talk about Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family individually. So Purdue changed the narrative, the game, really, when it came to getting these potentially lethal drugs into the medicine cabinets. They weaponized the American medicine cabinet. They figured out a way to market Oxycontin just like we market our McDonald's hamburgers or Coca-Cola. But the way they marketed it was they lied. They lied to the American public through misbranding, through what's called the delayed absorption black box statement, where they were able to make a claim with the FDA saying that Oxycontin really didn't really have an abuse potential to it. And they gaslit the country. What I experienced back in the 2000s in that pill clinic was the direct result of Purdue's efforts and strategies that were developed by the Sackler family. It was to get as many people on this medication as possible, utilizing a lie that they were able to get co-signed by the FDA and to incentivize doctors to prescribe, 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 and prescribe more, even if somebody was displaying symptoms of withdrawal. The answer was to give them more, not give them less or get them help. Purdue actually pled guilty for the first time in 2007 to federal crimes. Three executives pled guilty to federal crimes. You could think of a perfect world where in 2007, all of this went away and Purdue cleaned up their mess and they did things differently and we wouldn't be where we're at today. But instead, they doubled down. They kept doing what they were doing. And now we're looking down the barrel of an overdose crisis that is going to be very hard to rewind or to curb. The Sackler family, I believe, will go down in history as one of the chief corporate culprits of this man-made disaster around prescription drug overdoses. The fact that they are going to walk away from this with no criminal charges and basically a slap on the wrist is an insult to every single victim, every single family member who experienced the destruction of their product. I was led to the advocacy against the Sackler family and against Purdue because I started to learn more and more about the roots of the crisis in my early days of advocacy. In 2018, I hosted the largest ever protest in front of the company with over 500 families and individuals who were impacted. And because of American Fix and my advocacy against the Sacklers and against Purdue and trying to hold them accountable and getting them to divest their massive multi-billion dollar profits to start paying for treatment and recovery supports for communities devastated by their product, the Department of Justice kind of singled me out and I was able to get an appointment to this committee, the Unsecured Creditors Committee that served as kind of a mega plaintiff in the Purdue bankruptcy in September of 2019. But what I thought, Newt, going into the process was that the state attorneys general and the district attorneys and companies and victims and families, we were all on the same side versus Purdue and the Sacklers. 
what I learned going into the process though was something completely different that this bankruptcy was not about facts. It was not about evidence. It was not about right or wrong or writing past wrongs. It was about money and an extraordinary amount of money and power and victims were sidelined and left behind every step of the way. It will go down as one of the most colossal failures in public health that this country has ever seen, in my opinion. These people apparently knew that they were making their profit off of a process that was killing Americans. Yes, they knew, yes. And they just went ahead and did it. And they're still rich, and they didn't go to jail. And they didn't go to jail. They went ahead and they did it. They're not going to jail. Not one single member of the Sackler family has ever been indicted, has ever sat for a grand jury. There's 50 attorneys general in the United States who participated in this bankruptcy, who have the police power to charge them with a crime. They have not done that. The United States Department of Justice today has yet has yet to charge them with any crime whatsoever. No United States attorney has. It is maddening. I know people who are sitting in prison for low-level possession charges around marijuana and like other small drug crimes who are going to serve longer sentences than anything the Sacklers ever will have to serve. And the settlement, the $4.5 billion that they're putting in towards the bankruptcy the family, they get to pay that out over nine years and they will get a civil release, which means they can't get sued for anything specific to the opioid crisis up until current day. They will actually come out of paying that settlement after nine years based on their investments and their interest rates that they have richer than they are today after paying the settlement. So they'll be able to pay the four and a half billion dollars back and net a billion dollars on top of it at the end of nine years if they don't work another day in their life. It is just insanity. So was it just great lawyers on their part or how did we get to this kind of what at least on the surface to an outsider looks like an absolute miscarriage of justice? The system was really set up this way from the very beginning. The bankruptcy system in this country I believe through this experience is fundamentally flawed and needs extraordinary reform. It was built to favor them. You bring up lawyers. Yes, they had tremendous lawyers. If you want to ask me who really came out of the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy on top, it's the lawyers. Lawyers and consultants in the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy, less than 1,000 of them, when this is all said and done, will collect close to one point five billion dollars in fees. One point five billion dollars in fees. Do you know how much money the victims of Purdue's crimes will collect? A hundred and thirty thousand victims, families who lost loved ones to oxycotton and overdoses, they will have to share in a pool of $750 million, an average payout of $5,000 per family if they are lucky. The lawyers are the only ones to come out on top coming out of the Purdue bankruptcy. It is a system that needs radical reform. I mean, that's all I can say. I hope that Congress can get their act together and start to address bankruptcy reform because we're going to keep seeing the abuses of this bankruptcy system unless there's some sort of reform to it. And also, 
And this isn't popular on my side of the dirt, sometimes on politics, but tort reform as well, because I believe there were extraordinary abuses there in this case as well. And this really bothers me deeply because like you, I know people who have died and people whose lives have been ruined. And yet the Center for Disease Control announced that between April 2020 and April 2021, over 100,000 people died of overdoses. If you could wave a policy magic wand, what would you do to break out of the fentanyl, oxycotton, heroin, cocaine cycle that we seem to be caught up in right now? If I could wave a magic wand, I would say equitable access to addiction, treatment, recovery supports, and effective prevention measures for every single American who needs them. I would just like to say it is important for folks listening to realize that that's just drug overdose. If you include deaths by alcohol overdose into that, we're probably looking closer to five to 600,000 Americans who died last year. That's just drug overdose. We've had, I don't know, depending on what data you look at, seven to 800,000 COVID deaths in the United States. If you just use the drug overdose numbers, for every seven or eight COVID deaths, reported COVID deaths, you have one to two drug overdose deaths, yet federal investment into combating overdoses in this country is 700 times less than COVID. Over two and a half trillion dollars spent on COVID, yet we get peanuts for investment into real public health resources to combat overdose. And I ask the question, why? Because if we had a fraction of that response, that type of like urgent federal response towards addressing overdoses in this country, I think we could fix this problem. But it requires urgency and it requires action. And we just haven't seen that urgency or action from states, from the federal government, or from localities. We could do a lot with a little bit of money, but we can't even get a little bit of money. I agree with you. And as you know, I've worked with my daughter, Kathy Lubbers, and she's worked with some great people at The Zone in Marietta, Georgia, and is deeply committed on this issue. And I think it is just tragic that we have not taken seriously. And of course, we've come at it five or six times, but the culture almost repels us. I mean, if we were to try to have the same intensity of testing and the same intensity of identification for drug use that we had for COVID, I think the country would erupt. I think you'd have a substantial number of Hollywood stars in absolute rebellion if we cut off cocaine, for example. But listen, I want to really thank you, first of all, for your honesty about what you've lived through and the hope you give an audience by knowing that somebody can come through this valley and can end up being a really important contributing member of society. I also want to thank you for the work you're doing as an advocate. We need more people like you who can advocate for recovery and who have an eyewitness approach. And I do think you're making an impact on people's lives. I think making us aware both of the challenge of addiction, the challenge of lifelong recovery, and also the great weaknesses in our system today. And I also want to mention that we have a link to buy your new book, Unsettled, How the Purdue Pharma Bankruptcy Failed the Victims of the American Overdose Crisis on our show page. And I hope with all that you're doing, that you will take time and have a wonderful holiday. And I think you've earned the right to really, truly enjoy the Christmas season. 
Thank you, Newton. I'll be spending it with my mom this year. I haven't seen her in two years. Really excited. And thank you for your efforts on this issue as well. We're profoundly grateful. Thank you to my guest, Ryan Hampton. We have a link to buy his new book, Unsettled, How the Purdue Pharma Bankruptcy Failed the Victims of the American Overdose Crisis, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Pendley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.